The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So his argument is there's a Supreme Court precedent that says a former president can assert privilege. President Trump had directed me not to comply. The, the part about whether he asserted privilege or not is actually, this is actually how it happens most of the time with the executive branch. There's not an assertion of privilege. There's, a, there's an assertion that there might be an assertion of privilege. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 18th, 2022. In October 2021, the House of Representatives voted to find Trump associate Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress after Bannon refused to comply with a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. A month later, that November, the Justice Department indicted Bannon for contempt of Congress. And the trial is currently scheduled to begin this summer, 2022. So what's been happening in the interim? To catch up, I spoke with Lawfare senior editors Roger Parloff and Jonathan David Schaub. Roger has been following the Bannon prosecution closely and wrote about it in a recent Lawfare article. And Jonathan has written a great deal on Lawfare about the Office of Legal Counsel's positions on executive privilege, including how they might affect prosecutions for contempt of Congress. Bannon recently filed a motion to dismiss the case, making the argument that he believed Donald Trump's supposed invocation of executive privilege made it unnecessary for him to comply with a subpoena from the committee and he relied heavily on memos from the Office of Legal Counsel to do it. So what should we make of Bannon's arguments? How is the Justice Department navigating this tricky situation? And what, if anything, might this case tell us about the other contempt of Congress cases coming out of the January 6th committee that the Justice Department has yet to bring? It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 18th. Catching up with the Steve Bannon contempt prosecution. Roger, bring us up to speed. Why are we talking about Steve Bannon right now? What is he being prosecuted for and where does the case stand? Yeah, he's being prosecuted for contempt of Congress. And it stems from a subpoena that uh, he was served on September 23rd by the Select Committee, the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. And The background is, uh, as you remember, that Bannon was back in 2017 uh, chief strategist and senior counselor to President Trump. Then he left in August 2017. So three years later, he's a podcaster and he is apparently in the, he's believed to be in the so-called, the Willard Hotel so-called war room in the days leading up to January 6th. And on the evening of January 5th, on his War Room podcast, I mean, that's the name of his podcast, War Room also, he says, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. All I can say is strap in. You have made this happen, and tomorrow is game day. So the House Select Committee, uh, citing that, among other things, served him with a subpoena on September 23rd. And it sought both uh, document production, 17 categories of documents on October 7th, and uh, deposition testimony on October 14th. And I should say that, as is normal, the subpoena says that for documents, if you want to invoke privilege, turn in a, a privilege log. And then with respect to the testimony, if you want to invoke privilege, do it on a question by question basis. On October 7th, the uh, 
first deadline goes past for um, the documents. He does not produce any. There were 17 categories of documents sought. Incidentally, the earliest date of any of those documents that were sought was April 1st, 2020. So about two and a half years after he left the White House. And then on October 14th, the other deadline passes. He did, uh, on October 7th, he sent uh, a letter to Thompson invoking privilege for Trump, uh, and there's a back and forth. On October 14th, he uh, does, as I mentioned, he doesn't uh, show up for the deposition at all. With respect to the documents, there was also no privilege log. Uh, so he, he basically blew them, uh, blew them off. So on October 19th, the uh, committee votes to hold him in contempt. Um, the full Congress holds him in contempt on October 23rd, and he's indicted on November 12th on two counts, one for uh, the failure to produce documents, one for the failure to show up for the deposition. Each is a misdemeanor with a one-year maximum, so He's facing a potential of two years, and each actually has a one-year minimum, a one-month minimum uh, sentence as well. I think initially uh, his lawyer indicated his lawyers indicated they wanted to present an advice of counsel defense at trial because his uh, lawyer during the pre-indictment stage was Robert Costello, and he had advised him that he had. Uh, he could behave the way he behaved based on various opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice, perhaps some other DOJ internal memos as well. But the judge, uh, Judge Carl Nichols, ruled that uh, that is uh, defense is unavailable in uh, contempt cases. Uh, there was a binding precedent in the D.C. Circuit going back to 1960. And so now he has uh, filed also a motion to dismiss uh, based again on the Office of Legal Counsel opinions. Also sort of embedded in that is uh, uh, something called entrapment by estoppel, which is really an affirmative defense at trial, but he's put it into the motion to dismiss as well as sort of a due process violation that basically the OLC opinions were so misleading that it was a due process violation if the OLC decisions don't protect him, it's a due process violation because they were so misleading. It, they, he reasonably relied on them. And so uh, that motion is not fully briefed, but we do have uh, the first two briefs from each side, and it will be argued on June 15th, and the trial is set to begin on July 18th. So that's a great overview of sort of the the different issues at stake here and some of the the many complexities. I mean, I think the the picture that you really come away with from your description is someone who, you know, Bannon was outside the administration, but seemingly from his public statements and from what we know about uh, the fact that he was at the Willard, which was the, the Trump campaign's command center, it's been reported before January 6th, was very involved um, in these discussions and has completely stonewalled the committee. So, Jonathan, I want to turn to you to give us a little bit of setup on sort of the complexities of the Justice Department's role here before we dive into the details. This is only one of several ref uh, referrals for uh, criminal contempt of Congress made from the committee. Um, we've also seen referrals for uh, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, uh, former Trump aides Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino. We haven't heard anything yet on those cases. So you've written a great deal about the, the difficult considerations that go into the Justice Department deciding whether or not to bring a contempt of Congress prosecution when it's formally handed over to them by Congress. Can you explain why this isn't a straightforward issue? Like, why isn't it that, you know, Congress says jump and the department says how high? And why is it, do we know why the department decided to go forward with Bannon's prosecution? Sure, yeah, it's, um, there, there's quite a number of layers here. And, you know, we talk about the Justice Department as uh, the sort of singular entity, but what reality, we've, we've got different components of the Justice Department that, that likely have different equities in these cases. And so, so if you sort of go back to kind of the basic foundation 
uh, you know, Congress is investigating something, right? And it has the power to issue subpoenas, uh, but it has, in terms of enforcing those subpoenas, so when faced with someone who says, I'm not going to comply, generally Congress's tool for enforcing it is to refer that person or company, whoever it may be, to the Department of Justice for a criminal contempt of Congress charge, a criminal charge. It, back, you know, over around 100 years ago, Congress would itself imprison individuals. They haven't done that. It's uh, They don't really have the rules to do it. They don't have the sort of infrastructure or the mechanisms for doing it. The legality of it is somewhat questionable. They don't have a jail. <laughs> right. Yeah, they don't have a jail. They've been, it, there's a there's a lawfare piece uh, on like where people have been imprisoned, right? Uh, like in a hotel room or in like a closet on this, on the Senate or all these various places in the Capitol where, very, where people had been in, quote unquote imprisoned for contempt of Congress uh, back in the old day. So they're not going to go put, you know, Bannon in a closet at the moment, but they have to rely on this contempt of Congress statute to enforce their legislative subpoenas. And when they have subpoenaed the executive branch, and it is really all sort of starts, you know, around the 1970s, 1980s, and there's some there's some prior precedents that we can that people bring up and you can argue about, but it was in the early 1980s in the Reagan administration when the Department of Justice first said publicly, uh, in a formal OLC opinion, you know, if you hold a, a executive branch official in contempt for failing to comply with a subpoena and you refer him over for prosecution or her over for prosecution, uh, we will not prosecute that person if they're relying on an invocation of executive privilege. So in other words, you know, the executive branch will enforce these contempt of Congress charges unless it's a situation involving executive privilege where the president has said, you know, you individual within the EPA don't have to comply with this congressional subpoena and I'm asserting executive privilege. And so even though Congress is trying to get this enforced, the executive branch says we don't have to follow that direction. So, the, and this is a, a matter of some debate, right? Congress thinks the executive branch and Department of Justice has to prosecute because the statute says shall at least convene a grand jury. But the Department of Justice reads that against the backdrop of the constitutional power of the executive branch to decide who to prosecute, this idea of prosecutorial discretion, as well as the doctrine of, of privilege which gives the the president and the executive branch's view, at least, a pretty robust power to direct people not to comply with congressional subpoenas. And so Congress says you have to prosecute. The executive branch says we don't have to in these certain circumstances. And so that's where Bannon kind of fits in the middle here because he doesn't fit squarely within what the executive branch has said. They don't have to prosecute. But he does get support from some of these past executive branch positions, and they're you know all throughout these briefs, as as Roger was mentioning, saying that that privilege can potentially protect individuals against prosecution, and so the executive branch is weighing. We can get uh, you know talk further about some of the individual opinions or the doctrines or why they might or might not apply to Bannon, but sort of from a thousand foot view, Bannon is saying, look, the executive branch has publicly and repeatedly said. It will not enforce contempt of Congress in these circumstances. Although they aren't directly on point, they do apply to me, or I reasonably could think that they applied to me. Or as Roger said, really, my lawyer advised me they applied to me. And so now you can't sort of turn around and change your view and prosecute me just because it's a different administration, right? So he's trying to make this out as a political pursuit. And the Department of Justice is, is on the other side saying, yes, we have these past positions, but they're reconciling this prosecution because he was a private individual, because he was you know, not advising about official duties, because it's a former president who, who doesn't really seem to have asserted privilege. So there's all these sort of distinctions that, that the prosecution is drawing to say, you know, Bannon doesn't fit within this, this past practice. So let's dig into some of the ways that Bannon's arguments about the OLC memos may not succeed. And Roger, you've written a, a piece about the case where you kind of walk through this in depth. So I'm going to go by the your numbering. So so first, you, you point to this question of whether or not executive privilege is actually implicated at all 
by Bannon's interactions with Trump around January 6th. And you've you've kind of hinted at this already, but can you explain to me why you're skeptical? Um, and then you, you also read in the piece that you had an exchange about this with one of Bannon's lawyers. I'm curious after you set out your view, uh, what David Schoen, uh, Bannon's counsel, argued. Yeah, I, I, the crucial distinction is that none of these OLC rulings deal with a situation where a non-executive department employee who has been subpoenaed for information about a period when he was not an executive department employee invokes what looks like complete uh, a claim of blanket immunity uh, where he 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 doesn't have to comply in any way shape or form and there are precedents as as Jonathan can lay out where at least the OLC has claimed that certain high level executive department officials can make that sort of absolute immunity claim but he was none of those things. That's the obvious first issue. The other is that he's trying to invoke the privilege uh, or an ex-president is trying to invoke the privilege where the current president is not invoking it. Uh, We're familiar with that. But then there are these other issues about whether Trump properly invoked it at all what happened here was that, and actually we, we know a surprising amount about what happened here because Bannon's lawyer, Costello, after Robert Costello, uh, after the Congress voted to hold him in contempt and before the, he was indicted, he spoke to the prosecutors twice and tried to persuade them not to indict. And so he told them a lot about what he was doing and not doing during the, that period. So we know that he, it looks like he went to Trump's attorney, Justin Clark, and not vice versa, but not that that's crucial. And then a day before the documents are due, Clark, Justin Clark, Trump's attorney, writes him this sort of ambiguous letter a letter to Costello. It's not written to the select committee. It's written to Costello. And it says, the subpoena seeks records and testimony and information, which is, quote, potentially protected from disclosure by the executive and other privileges. And uh, dot, 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 President Trump is prepared to defend these fundamental privileges in court. He says, therefore, he instructs Mr. Bannon to, where appropriate, invoke any immunities and privileges he may have, and then uh, not produce any documents concerning privileged material, not provide any testimony concerning privileged material. So Costello uses that and produces nothing, no documents and no testimony. And when he, he writes to Thompson to explain that this is his basis Benny Thompson, the chairman of the uh, select committee, Thompson writes back and says, you know, among other things, he says many things, but it's not even clear. You know, we haven't heard from Mr. Trump's lawyer. And what you're reading to us or what you're quoting is highly tentative. It talks about an intent to he's prepared to defend these things. And he's not saying anything about a blanket privilege. You know, he's saying invoke it with respect to privileged materials. You are invoking it with respect to everything. You haven't turned over a privilege law. It gets weirder still when uh, some of this, there is, you know, press coverage of what's happening. And, and, and Clark learns the position, Clark, Trump's lawyer, Clark learns the position Costello is taking. And he actually writes to Costello and begins to suggest that he says, Bob, it's an email. I just read your letter dated October 13th to Thompson. In it, you state that as recently as today, President Trump has directed Mr. Bannon not to produce documents or testify until the issue of 
executive privilege is resolved. And then he says to Costello, to be clear, in our conversation yesterday, I simply reiterated the same instruction from my letter to you before. So he's saying, what you told Thompson is not accurate. Costello then writes an angry letter to his client, Bannon. He fires it off. He says, this is not accurate. He definitely stated that Trump was invoking the executive privilege and so on. And then he says, I don't know what game Clark is playing, but it puts Steve Bannon in a dangerous position. Beware. And then two days later, Clark again writes Costello. He said, Bob, in light of press reports regarding your client, I wanted to reach out just to reiterate the letter I referenced below didn't indicate that we believe there is immunity from testimony for your client. As I indicated to you the other day, we don't believe there is. Now, you may have a different determination. That is entirely your call. But as I indicated the other day, uh, there may be avenues to invoke privilege, dot, dot, dot. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you again to contact counsel to the committee to discuss it further. This is already October 16th. He's let both deadlines go past. And, you know, the deadline for Thompson has said, you, you need to do something by the 18th or we're going to hold you in contempt. Costello then writes back to Clark. He doesn't write to Thompson, writes back to Clark and says to the Trump's lawyer, thank you, Justin, your original letter speaks for itself. And that is what we are basing our communications with the select committee on. And uh, your suggestion that I reach out to counsel for the committee is curious, considering that I have asked you to do the same, because he kept asking, Costello kept asking Clark to contact the committee, and Clark wasn't doing it, and never did, because the committee didn't regard this letter to Costello as sufficient. So there's some uh, something strange going on, and a total speculation on my Part, but I think it has to do with the fact that Trump doesn't want to link himself to whatever was happening at the Willard. And so far, there isn't any direct connection. But if he says, oh, yeah, I invoke executive privilege with respect to what was happening at the Willard, then he's saying that somebody was acting on his instructions in some way. But that, that's speculation on my part. But as a result, you have this very squishy question of whether uh, even Trump invoked executive privilege. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that this is a, a very strange situation. As you say, it's, it's not clear if Trump invoked executive privilege. It's also not clear whether or not executive privilege, that, that this would be something that you know, could shield Bannon from giving over materials, even if it it were invoked for a number of reasons. So Jonathan, I want to turn to you. I think there are sort of two different but interrelated questions here. The The first is whether or not there can even be a claim of executive privilege, given that Bannon is outside the administration when these conversations are taking place. The second question is what to do with the fact that, assuming that Trump did actually at some point invoke privilege, what it means that he invoked it at the same time that the current president, President Biden, explicitly declined to invoke it. So this is complicated. Let's take those things one by one. First things first, Jonathan, is there any case to be made based on the OLC memos that Bannon is pointing to that as a person who was not in the administration, he can, the president could potentially, potentially assert privilege over those conversations? I, I, so I'd say 99% there is not. I, it's hard to say 100%. Maybe this is the, you know, the lawyer in me without actually seeing or knowing what the communications were. It's the thinnest of reads that Bannon is trying to rely on because there's uh, there's one OLC opinion, basically, uh, although there's sort of more informal things that says, you know, private individuals who advise the president or individuals outside the executive branch might be covered by the doctrine of privilege. And you sort of think about the rationale for executive privilege, which is that the president be able to get sort of candid, candid advice, you know, free from kind of the 
uh, disclosure, people will talk more freely and, and be willing to tell him what he needs to hear or she needs to hear. And so the, that rationale theoretically could apply to someone outside the executive branch. There is some uh, very little, but some precedent that says the executive branch might regard someone outside the executive branch who is advising the president as falling under the ambit of executive privilege. The problem is all of this has to be on sort of the president's official duties, right? And this is the part that gets lost, I think, in a lot of the conversations is even if executive privilege could cover somebody outside the executive branch, it certainly is a governmental privilege, meaning it only would apply to people who are advising the president about their official duties as president. Uh, They don't apply to someone advising the president about, you know, personal matters, political matters. And I think there is, there just seems to be no argument whatsoever that Bannon was in any way advising Trump or advising Trump's advisor or discussing with them actions that were within his constitutional authority, right? This is all about things that were to undermine the constitution and to undermine the election. And so the argument that this is potentially covered by privilege to me is extremely weak, not so much because he's a private individual, but because of what was the subject of the conversation. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I think we we see that distinction between, you know, is this is January 6th within the scope of the president's official duties or is it outside it? And among other things, the Trump v. Thompson litigation, the lawsuit filed by uh, January 6th committee chairman Benny Thompson against Trump, where one of the main questions is, you know, is is Trump shielded from this because his speech on January 6th was part of his duties as president? And and once again, it, it seems like we're kind of coming back to that question. Yeah, there's certainly uh, a lot of overlap between the questions about, you know, the president's immunity in those civil cases based on the events of the 6th and, and you know, whether he's acting as official, sort of getting official advice. I think it's the case for privileges is even weaker than the arguments about the speech on January 6th and, and those things, because because here we're talking about not, you know, Trump's actions, but but what Bannon is telling Trump or Trump's advisors and it, it just, it seems from what we know, we don't know everything, but we know a lot about what was happening. It, it seems absurd to say the, the things that Bannon was, had his hands in, which seemed to be these sort of alternate slate of electors and all of these sort of schemes to undermine the election were in any way related to an official duty of the president. Even further, uh, harder to argue that even than, you know, giving a speech on the wall. And if I could pipe in, um, and Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, even if what he's doing, what what they were doing at the Willard, let's assume for the sake of argument that it was nothing illegal, or, but it's sort of the best light you could place on it would be that it had something to do with the campaign that would still not be an official executive function. And in fact, it would be like illegal under the Hatch Act, not a criminal matter. But so I, I just don't, it's it, like like you're saying, I just don't see how it could be covered by executive privilege. Right. Yeah. The, there's a, and this comes up a lot in the immunity case in the civil litigation, the Trumpy Thompson and the, the president's kind of two bodies of there's a political and there's the sort of official role. And even if we are we're outside and we're saying this is legitimate conversation, it, it seems like it would relate to the political aspect as opposed to, and the, and the, which is part of Trump's personal capacity and not the official duties of, of Trump. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, speaking of the president's two bodies, there there are also uh, two presidents who are seeking to uh, weigh in on the privilege question here, which of course is the the second way in which this gets kind of complicated. So again, as as Roger has very capably set out, there's kind of a big question mark over whether in fact Trump did invoke privilege here. But let's say for the sake of argument here that he did. At the same time, we have President Biden, who is obviously the current president, explicitly declining to invoke the privilege. So Jonathan, can you just walk us through how this works, how you can have sort of two presidents weighing in at the same time, one one former and one current, and what that means for the strength of Trump's invocation of privilege, again, assuming that there was in fact such an invocation? Sure. Yeah. I, I, I love the great transition, right? Two bodies, two presidents. So now we have like four bodies, I guess, right? We've got 
Biden's two bodies and Trump's two bodies. And They're multiplying. How do they all relate to each other? <laughs> if we're, we're, we're focused on Bannon, I actually think to me this issue is 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 somewhat less important because you know there this question hung over the lawsuit that Trump filed against the National Archives and the committee trying to keep the documents from going over to the committee. And the question of what's what's a former president's authority to assert executive privilege? And the complicating factor, because a lot of people just want to say there is no authority, right? It's a, this privilege belongs to the office of the president. The person who's elected to that office can assert the privilege. End of argument, right? The former president has no authority to do that. But there's this sort of unfortunate, in some ways, language in a Supreme Court case where former President Nixon sued the administrator of the General Services, who at that time had presidential papers, claiming that the Presidential Records Act that was passed to govern the dispersion of his papers was uh, unconstitutional and infringed his privilege. And the Supreme Court said a former president may assert privilege. Uh, it was in a completely different context. It was a facial challenge to a statute. It wasn't an assertion of privilege over particular documents. It wasn't in the face of a congressional subpoena. But you had this language in a, the Supreme Court opinion that says a former president may assert privilege. And so that's what Trump has was relying on in the suit against the archives. That's what Bannon was relying on at the time. And we this went up to the D.C. Circuit, right, in the, in the context of the archives. The D.C. Circuit said, no, the former president doesn't have the authority. Uh, it said much more. But then what the Supreme Court did was essentially to make it all muddy again and, and say, we're not going to answer the question of what authority a former president has in this context because of the extraordinary events of January 6th, even if he could assert privilege. It would be outweighed here. Justice Kavanaugh concurred to say, you know, there are some questions about what a former president can do. So there's this very sticky sort of unresolved question about the authority of a former president. In the context of January 6th, I think the Supreme Court has now settled that Trump does not have any authority to assert privilege. But that happened after this incident with Bannon. So Bannon's argument is based on his sort of understanding and his reliance interests at the time where he was defying the committee. And at that time, this question was unresolved. So his argument is there's a Supreme Court precedent that says a former president can assert privilege. President Trump had directed me not to comply. The, The part about whether he asserted privilege or not is actually, this is actually how it happens most of the time with the executive branch. There's not an assertion of privilege. There's a there's an assertion that there might be an assertion of privilege. And that's, I think, what Bannon and Trump were doing in this sort of interaction was to say, we're not asserting privilege yet, but don't turn anything over because we might we might down the road and sort of kick the can down the road with the committee. And so Bannon's argument is it was legitimate to rely on this because we know the former president had some, at least at that time, thought he had some authority to assert privilege. Uh, and so I can't be prosecuted for relying on following the direction, essentially, of the former president. This gets to something important, I think, which is that, you know, you, you've you written quite a bit, Jonathan, about how OLC has really taken executive privilege and this idea of testimonial immunity for presidential advisors that comes along with it and kind of run with it uh, quite a ways, perhaps beyond what uh, just the, the doctor might originally have, have supported. To what extent is what Bannon is arguing here kind of way overshooting what OLC has argued? And to what extent is he able to make this argument precisely because of the aggressive posture that that OLC has taken? I guess another way to phrase it is to what extent is there some some reaping what OLC has sown? uh, Or is that unfair? No, I I don't think that's unfair at all. I mean, you can imagine if it's some sort of weird hypothetical universe that Trump had won, but there still was a January 6th committee, which I guess I guess could have happened, then I, I think all of these would be probably justified by OLC opinions. Um, and they would have to extend them, but they wouldn't have to go too far uh, because of the, as you said, the sort of seeds that have been sown. I mean, we talked about former uh, sort of private parties being covered by privilege. 
as sort of Roger was talking about this back and forth between uh, Bannon's and Trump's lawyers and the communication to the committee. But this is what OLC has started to do is to say, we're not going to assert privilege, but we're going to say this is potentially privileged and the president is the only one that can waive it. So we're not turning over anything that is even potentially privileged until we get to the very end. The same thing is true of this. So part of it in some ways depends on the arguments, but I think this is especially true with the deposition counsel argument. Uh, so this one's a bit in the weeds, but you know, Bannon argues he was subpoenaed for a deposition under the committee's rules. His private counsel could attend, but a counsel for President Trump would not be allowed in the room. And there's a 2019 OLC opinion that, that draws on some past precedents that says if a congressional committee has a deposition and they don't allow a government attorney in to protect privilege, then the subpoena is invalid. And so it's it's actually very hard to to create daylight between Bannon's argument about the deposition counsel and OLC's opinion. Uh, you know, with the with the privilege arguments, we can say he was a private party. It wasn't about official duties. With the immunity argument, it's very clear. He was not being asked about things taken in his official capacity. So I think it's it's in some ways there are there are straightforward arguments that OLC can use to distinguish its precedents from Bannon's arguments in the context of privilege and immunity. But it's it's very hard to do in the context of the deposition council requirement, which was one of the things, uh, one of the opinions that was issued that I wrote about uh, because I I was. You know, having been in that office and, and worked on that issue, I was surprised to see the, the OLC take such an aggressive position uh, in 2019. And I think you're seeing it come back to haunt the prosecutors, um, and they're, they're largely relying on waiver. But there's, there's a number of places, I think, in the government's response that I, as a sort of OLC, non-criminal person, look at and say, wow, I can't believe OLC approved that going in there because some of the arguments they take do seem to be in tension with some of the broader positions that OLC has had in the past and hasn't, hasn't gone back on, or at least publicly uh, in the, in the Biden administration. Yeah. The factual context of that is all is again, very interesting. And the government would say, you know, that this is an. They, the, the government has said that they think the record is littered with bad faith, and this is sort of one example. The, what happened was, and of course, I assume this has nothing to do with the subpoena ducis tecum but for the for the documents that's already, uh, you know, that deadline has passed, and and uh, I don't think this is relevant to it. But then on October thirteenth. The day before uh, the deposition is to take place, uh, the senior counsel for um, uh, investigative counsel for the committee reaches out to find out, you know, if he's really going to come because if Costello and Bannon are going to come because he wants to figure out logistics and COVID and all all of this. And there uh, he says, well, we're not going to come. Costello says, we're not going to come, but let me ask you, uh, is it, uh, I, I'm curious, it, is it possible to have Trump's counsel attend? And I don't need an answer to this right now. Uh, we're not going to attend in any event, in either case, but uh, I was just curious. And so the senior counsel doesn't answer that question. Then either that night or the next day, Costello sends another letter to Benny Thompson saying he's he's not going to show up and uh, give, invoking privilege and not mentioning deposition counsel as an issue. And then Costello speaks to the prosecutors, as I mentioned in those pre-indictment conversations, and he explains and they ask him, did you did you ask, you know, did Trump's counsel Clark asked to attend, or did you ask him to attend? And he says no and no. And obviously he wouldn't have attended. He couldn't even get, this is what he said, he tells the prosecutors, I couldn't even get Justin Clark to, you know, write a letter to the committee. 
you know, obviously uh, he wasn't going to show up and be there. So all of this is manipulation of concepts in bad faith to stall. That's what it really is. Now, I, I don't know that legally, you know, it makes any difference, but that's what it is. And uh, uh, so it, it certainly presents this question in, in an unattractive light. I think Roger's exactly right. And, I, and, I, and I, I think, you know, maybe the thing that people don't always realize is that this is pretty common, right? In these battles between the executive branch and, and Congress, uh, where, you know, there's interaction and there's discussions and they, you know, may, there may be an agreement between government counsel and the committee, but then there's a, a sort of a breakdown, right? And it goes to litigation. And then once you're in litigation, it's, it's, you know, back to the entire arsenal of arguments, even if there were arguments that you were, had kind of abandoned or weren't making as part of the accommodation process. I and mean, I think that's what Bannon has done. You know, he's, the government relies a lot on waiver, but it's not always, I'm not as clear as to whether, you know, you can actually waive a defense in, as part of this negotiation if it's a legitimate defense to the prosecution. Um, so I think this, this, is, this represents the problem of Congress, the only, having the only way to enforce it is this sort of criminal proceeding where the burden is on the government to check all the boxes, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And you can see Bannon is, is raising all of the problems. And then you think about, you know, Bannon has actually, I think, made it a lot easier by just totally not complying, which is, I think, also some of the underlying message in the communications with Clark, whereas some of the other witnesses were going to the committee, talking about privilege, and Bannon just blew them off entirely. And then kind of later, as Roger said, tries to input some of these arguments. Uh, but so Bannon made it easier in some ways to prosecute by, by total noncompliance. But these, all of these issues that he's raising are going to be you know, 10 or, or 100 times harder with people like Meadows or Scavino or Clark who were you know, in the government at the time. And I think that's why we haven't seen an indictment yet in part because DOJ's looking at this and saying, man, how, you know, if, we, if this, we're having this much trouble with Bannon, what's going to happen if we try to, to bring this against Meadows? Yeah, so I want to I want to ask you about that more. So I'm curious for what your thoughts were on the Justice Department's opposition to Bannon's motion to dismiss. We've talked about how they're they're kind of uh, doing a, a very tricky dance here, um, and I'm curious not only what you made of that filing, but also whether there are any you know tea leaves that we might see in there that might hint at how the department might be able to, or might decide to, to handle these other cases that as, that are, as you say, a great deal trickier. You know, I think one of the, the most important things, and this, this really came out in some of the prior filings as well, but it's this interpretation that the justice department says that there's essentially no, uh, no excuse for noncompliance. And it's a strict liability crime in the sense that if you fail to show up, even if you were acting in good faith, uh, it still constitutes a willful default under the contempt statute. Uh, and I think there's a lot of tension between that and what their position has been, which is, you know, individuals don't have to show up if they're relying on a direction from the president. So that would sense that maybe they would be willing to go and prosecute someone like Meadows, who even though might have a stronger basis to argue in good faith that he's relying on immunity because he was a senior presidential aide, he wasn't a private person, um, that those arguments would not be be helpful at all. So I, I think they have to take that position if they want to prosecute Meadows. So so maybe they're, they're making sure their position would apply to him. Uh, there's also, there's one thing that really stuck out to me in the context of immunity. They lay out the, the claims of immunity and they say, and I don't know if this was just an oversight or or how this got in there, but they say there had to be an assertion of privilege over the stuff that the individual was, was going to testify about, which has not really ever been a, a requirement of immunity. And so whether they're, whether that was just the prosecutors or not quite understanding the OLC doctrine, or whether that is 
the position that they are going to adopt to distinguish what Meadows is claiming from some of the past immunity cases. So I, I, I read this as allowing for the prosecution of Meadows that the positions that they are adopting would, would not preclude that. Although you, you can see kind of at the end of every section, they go back to the, well, in any event, even if you disagree with all of this, Bannon was a private party talking about private business and there's no assertion of privilege. So even if you reject everything, he's still guilty because none of this applies to him. But I, you can see what their, the kind of baseline legal arguments that they've adopted, you know, they would allow them to go to prosecute Meadows. And, and I, I would imagine that's purposeful that they're, they're thinking about that and seriously thinking about bringing that prosecution. So I want to take a step back and, and address something that I think we've kind of been circling around, which is the the strength of the case against Bannon. On the one hand, it seems, you know, pretty obvious, that Roger, as, as you've described, that this is not somebody who made an effort to comply and just in the end couldn't make it happen because he was, you know, desperately confused about OLC memos. This is someone who, you know, pretty clearly <laughs> seems to have been uh, stonewalling from the beginning. And yet, because we do have all of this material from OLC on the table, the situation gets incredibly murky. We've just spent almost an hour talking it through, and I think it's fair to say we've sort of scratched the surface Bannon and the Justice Department are going to have to explain all of this to a jury to to make their case. Um, so I'm curious for for both of your sense and and Roger, let me turn to you first. What is the strength of the case here? Who who are you? You know, if you're the Justice Department um, or if you're Bannon, how confident do you feel about the case that you're going to be making? Hmm. Well, there are these really crucial rulings that haven't been made yet, and one that has. And I'm talking about trial at the moment. And then the, the crucial one that has been decided was the advice, the, the judge ruled that Bannon could not present an advice of counsel defense. Now, whether that would be overturned on appeal, and it would require overruling an earlier ruling, but that could happen. It could especially happen at the Supreme Court. But so far, the prosecution is trying to make this an exceedingly simple case where there would be, I mean, as as we've just demonstrated, if if you can imagine the OLC opinions coming into evidence and then the jurors pouring over those, that's crazy. Uh, it could come to that because uh, that's what Bannon wants to do through the entrapment by estoppel defense. Now, the judge has not ruled on this. And to me, this sounds like a way of sneaking back in through the back door, the advice of counsel defense. But let me just explain what an entrapment by estoppel defense is. It's basically a due process thing. And the idea is that you've been sandbagged by a law enforcement official who basically told you what you were doing was going to be okay. And so the definition is one, and, and this is an affirmative defense, so Bannon would have to prove it. It would be A, uh, that a government agent actively misled the defendant about the state of the law defining the offense, B, that the government agent was responsible for interpreting, administering, or enforcing the law defining the offense, three, that the defendant actually relied on the agent's misleading pronouncement in committing the offense, and four, that the defendant's reliance was reasonable in light of the identity of the agent, point of law rep misrepresented, and substance of the misrepresentation. So what the government is saying is that, well, the first question is, did Bannon read these OLC rulings? If not, if he's relying on what Costello told him about it, that's the advice of counsel thing, which we've already ruled on. So there's a a big issue there, whether Bannon is going to be able to even lay a foundation for invoking this defense before the jury. If he does, uh, wow. I mean, I just think it's a, I, I can't imagine a jury grappling with it. Uh, but, and if he doesn't, uh, I, I do think on appeal there, I mean, even Judge Nichols indicated a in his ruling, denying the advice of counsel defense, 
that if he was writing on a clean slate, he might come out the other way. And I think all of us feel a little queasy about, well, is this fair to have, you know, the, the, the client relying on the attorney and, and going to jail for it? Of course, the, the, the other way of looking at it is the facts of this case. What, what else is going to happen? Is there going to be any break at all on a uh, attorney from making out, you know, extremely aggressive arguments? Uh, and then falling on his sword, if you know, if, if need be, before the jury and saying, well, it was my fault. Jonathan, what's your take? Yeah, so, I mean, I think on the legal issues, so one one important, I think, piece of background for the kind of non-lawyers out there is that OL, these OLC opinions that we've been talking about have generally fared terribly when they've actually been ruled on by courts. Um, so even the, the the cases that have risen beforehand Judges have been very reluctant to accept what we've talked about, sort of these very broad assertions of, of executive power and executive privilege. So I think on the law, uh, I don't think Bannon is going to be successful in these legal arguments to dismiss. And I think it's easy to distinguish him, as we've talked about, as this private person who was not asked to testify about anything related to his official duties as a prior advisor or anything like that. And so I think we will, we will, he will lose on his legal arguments. You know, maybe he confuses the jury enough with these uh, sort of more complicated arguments. I don't really know. I don't know enough about how jury trials work and haven't studied juries enough to, to have an informed opinion about it. I do think he, I, when you sort of boil it down to the optics, right, the prosecution is going to say, Bannon went on a podcast. He's bragging about blowing off the committee. He's never going to comply. All of these sort of contrived legal and complicated arguments. Just forget all of those and think about what he actually did, which was he was the only one really now at this point that just said from the get go, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not showing up and didn't even raise these arguments at first. So I think it's very likely that he you know, maybe it's 50-50, maybe it's 60-40, he gets convicted, and then it gets, gets held up on appeal. But I, I don't think he really will set a precedent for later cases. I, I think he's too different and too easy of a case to really establish precedent that's going to help the department in later cases. I, I think that if he loses the motion to dismiss and the entrapment by estoppel, the, the, uh, the judge excludes that, then the OLC rulings won't come in at all. If he is allowed to testify about these, then another interesting question arises, which is what can the government go into on cross? I mean, he would have to testify. I assume they're not going to let Costello testify about this. That would again be the advice of counsel defense. That he Bannon would have to testify saying, I relied on these. And then the government would say, well, no, you didn't rely. You didn't want to testify because you didn't want to incriminate yourself and you didn't want to incriminate Trump. And in order to make those arguments, he would ask, what were you doing at the Willard? And so the judge would have to make a very interesting ruling, a motion in limine before trial. He would have to put limits on, well, if he takes the stand, what will the government be allowed to ask him about? And just to close us out, Roger, can you remind us uh, what the important dates are in this case to keep an eye on as things move forward? Yes, the argument uh, today actually was pushed off from, uh, well, it doesn't matter from when, but to June 15th. Uh, That will be the oral argument on these motions to dismiss and some related things like the whether they'll be permitted to present an entrapment by estoppel defense at trial. And then the trial itself is supposed to start or the jury selection on July 18th. Well, we will be keeping an eye on it. Roger, Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. 
Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.